What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, two heavyweight academics on the shape of the world to come and the one we live in right now. John Gray is one of the UK's most important and influential political thinkers, and his recent book is The New Leviathans, Thoughts After Liberalism. It looks at the world of the 2020s through the prism of the great 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who is famous for saying that without government, Life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Joining John today is David Runciman, political scientist, professor of politics at Cambridge University, and podcaster known for the Past, Present, Future podcast, and formerly the Talking Politics show. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free, head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership, or just subscribe to the channel via the Apple Podcasts app, and you can ditch the ads and dig into much more premium, members-only content. And if you want to keep up with upcoming events, talks like this one or attend in person, why not visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to our newsletter and you'll be first to hear about what's coming up and get your hands on tickets to events with Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Michael Lewis and Gillian Tett, all landing straight into your inbox. This link is in the description. But now let's join David Runciman with more. John Gray will be very well known, I'm sure, to many of you. He is one of Britain's leading political philosophers and thinkers. He is a regular columnist for The New Statesman. He has written more than 20 books on a dizzying array of subjects, and his new one is trenchant, thought-provoking, and very, very punchy. And we're going to talk about it and talk about some of the really big themes and ideas. So, John, the book is The New Leviathans, and it takes as its inspiration a book that I've also written about in the past and, and thought about for many years, Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, which is just one of the great works of political philosophy. It is one of the great books in the English language. And you you quote from it liberally throughout. For people who don't know it, it was published in 1651. And you take from that book a two-word phrase that's the title of the last chapter, Mortal Gods. And I want to ask you about that phrase because it's, uh, it's full of meaning. What Hobbes was saying, as I understand it, is that we need to create something with godlike powers to tame this world. In a sense, human beings are going to have to take on through their political institutions godlike powers. But we're partly doing this to free ourselves from the hold of religion. 
and the horror that comes with the religious wars of the 17th century. So there is something paradoxical, and that phrase, mortal God, after all, is a paradoxical phrase. Is. God is now mortal. God can die. This is long before Nietzsche. Mm. How do you understand the, the tension between those two thoughts in that two-word phrase, humans need to become like gods in order to emancipate themselves from religion? It's a very good starting question, uh, David. Um, I think Hobbes's use of that phrase is intended to uh, uh, articulate a paradox, that's to say, a truth in the form of an apparent contradiction. Uh, he's what has been called a political atheist, which means, on the one hand, he's a political atheist, which means he wants to entirely separate political authority from religion, as you say, from the authority of God. And yet, he says, in order to do that, we have to create uh, a godlike state. But it's a mortal god. And by saying that it's a mortal god, unlike the gods, unlike the god of um, monotheism, for example, of Christian and Jewish and Islamic monotheism, uh, it's a god that can fail. Uh, he allows that it can fail. Um, uh, when human beings fall back into the state of nature. And that kind of unresolved contradiction, I think, is unresolved in Hobbes, partly because, so one reason, perhaps the main reason, because it's um, unresolved and unresolvable um, in the human world. Uh, anything that humans create, however they create it, whether by uh, a covenant among themselves or in some other more indirect way, um, can be destroyed in the human world, everything in the human world is mortal. And so, um, I think these interlocking paradoxes are all there in, in Hobbes and are, as it's a feature of his prose, which I think in the book I describe as having a kind of lapidary finality that it, it, it contains an awful lot often in a very short, um, compass, including this paradox to which you've, um, Referred. Does that answer your question, or is there more we need to unpack? No, I'm going to I'm going to follow it up with a, a variant on that question because your book is also about liberalism and what yes. come, comes after liberalism. And I would say one of the themes of your book is that this paradox is at the heart of liberalism. Yes, and you, you give an example of a, a later version of this, which you call canonical liberalism, which is mm. John Stuart Mill, the, the mm. great 19th century thinker, and also August Comte as well, mm. The, mm. the founder of modern sociology, that mm. you can get from this idea that we, we have to create political institutions with godlike powers mm. to a version of this, which is what Mill called the religion of humanity, yes. the idea that actually human beings have to be the source of our faith, and we have to have faith in them. Yes. And faith in human beings and their perfectibility or their ability to progress. So, progress then itself becomes a kind of yes. religious idea. So, I don't think this is true of Hobbes. I don't think Hobbes, no. if you read no. Hobbes, it's a book that's got a reputation as a gloomy book, but it's very funny. And one of the reasons it's funny is it's funny about the absurdity of human beings and our Absolutely. failings and foibles and frailties and vanities. But by the time you get to 19th century liberalism, yes. human beings have become objects of religious veneration. Explicitly so, so in Mill. Yes. Yeah, so ha what happens with that move? Because that does go beyond simply you know, the mm. godlike state to the, the godlike human. Well, 
what happens, I suppose, um, um, in Mill, certainly after Mill um, imbibed Comte's religion of humanity, is that one of the powers that is ascribed to the deity in monotheism came to be ascribed to human being, not perfection, as much as a capacity for open-ended self-creation, open-ended self-transformation. Um, uh, whereas in Hobbes, and Hobbes, as you know from my book, David, is to my mind cl much closer to the truth here, mm. although he does think the application of reason can enable human beings to improve their lot, he never ascribes to human beings much of a capacity for self-creation beyond that of creating artificial persons, artificial versions of themselves, which are mortal. Uh, um, he, for him, human beings, the capacity for human beings to um, transcend themselves is real, but very limited. Whereas in Mill, uh, having turned, if you like, liberalism itself into a religion, uh, uh, human beings be become placeholders for the God that um, Mill as an agnostic or uh, other liberals at the time as atheists had had displaced. And I think this is a, I think this move away from what um, uh, I meant called earlier, political atheism, which is not ascribing, political atheism is not ascribing godlike powers to a, to a state, to seeing state, the state, a state as being godlike in the sense that it transcends particular human beings and their frailties, but never, never wholly escapes the limitations and the mortality of the human world. This abandonment of political atheism for liberalism as a religion was a fatal move, I think. And it's earlier than many think. And it's still denied. It's adamantly denied by many liberals. They, they constantly say we never assumed that. We, we're, we're empiricists. It's not an article of faith that we're defending when we defend um, um, uh, uh, liberalism. Um, but in fact, in, in Mill, it's quite clear that uh, he, he says explicitly in passages I quote from um, uh, uh, his writings that um, um, the, the religion of humanity, which he more or less elides with liberalism, as, as Comte didn't, of course, because Comte was a non-liberal or anti-liberal. Um, um, he, he, he says, uh, it is a religion and better than any religion that's ever existed in the past. This is the religion of the future, the religion of humanity, although, of course, it's only the progressive vanguard of humanity that gets fully revered and fully um, credited with uh, uh, these, these, these powers. The, the miscellaneous masses with all of their... Um, uh, uh, strange beliefs and superstitions and um, uh, uh, whimsical ways don't get counted. He's explicit about that that too. He says we don't count them because they're not contributing to the human drama and that is other human story. And that is another way in which his liberalism differs from Hobbes's and is more like monotheism, which is that it's a universal narrative. Uh, uh, it's, it's supposed to be a narrative of the human species, the, the, the whole of the human species. In other words, the human species become, I mean, the key thing that happens, which doesn't happen in Hobbes, is that the human species becomes an agent, a universal agent. It's not in Hobbes, I think you would agree. Hmm. There are particular covenants that can be achieved at particular times. He may be over-optimistic about the 
human capacities to achieve them, but they can be achieved, he thinks, at particular times. But there's no human uh, the human, there's no human animal acting as an agent, and that connects, of course, with Hobbes's arguments, which I explore in the book about absurdity. And one of the ways in which we can fall into absurdity is to attribute reality to general names, to, 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 to general ideas. And we have a general idea of humanity, the human species, the human animal. Uh, and what we've done, which Hobbes didn't do, but Mill did do. I think, at least, uh, well, actually, I was going to say implicitly, but it isn't implicit, it's explicit, uh, is, to, is to think of humanity as an agent. Uh, as, as, and I think this is very widespread even today. When people say we, what are we going to do about globalization? What are we going to do about artificial intelligence? You know, who's the we? Who's the we? It's the post-million universal human subject they're talking about, which Hobbes and I would regard as an absurd uh, uh, category mistake. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. So you could say, and I, I think this maps onto the argument of your book, that mm. liberalism in this, you know, this sweeping account mm. moves through three key stages. So you've mm. got the, the Hobbesian liberalism. It is a form of liberalism, but it's mm. deeply mm. political mm. and it's deeply skeptical. It yeah. has no illusions about the human. 
you know, we, we as it were, we need to have those protections precisely because we can't. Well, it may have some. Each other. It may have some illusions. The illusion that humans can use their reason and get out of this right, so, right, relatively so if, easily. Okay, so if it is an illusion, it's an illusion of rationalism. Yes. Then you you move to what you call Mill's canonical liberalism that, that mm. takes us to an idea of the human and of humanity, and as you say, the we. Mm. And then we move to what you call the contemporary version, which is hyperliberalism. Mm. And as I understood it from your book, hyperliberalism, one of its many pitfalls, hmm. is it's it's a religion that doesn't know it's a religion. So at yes. least with the religion of humanity, the word is there in the title. But with yes. hyperliberalism, as yes. it were, it presents as rational hmm. and it presents as the political hmm. secular version. Hmm. But it, it but it has all the hallmarks of a religious doctrine while denying its, it while denying it while denying it and that's it's it's a self-deceived form of politics that's its great great failing that's one of its great failings because whatever one can say about comte and mill they were both extremely um self-aware thinkers hobbes uh, um sorry uh, comte was perhaps more of a uh conscious dogmatist mill was extremely um self-critical uh including about his um uh relationships with with comp uh, but what they both recognized which i think is a uh um uh, admirable in both of them and distinguishes them from the hyper liberals is that they two things first of all that something that might be called religion some framework of belief and commitment um was necessary to human societies and to the human world in general in other words, they didn't think religion was a, just an intellectual error, an intellectual mistake, or a form of oppression. They thought it served um, paradigmatically, prototypically human functions, human 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 needs. Whereas many of the hyperliberals today uh, uh, imagine that um, uh, since religion, in their view, is only or primarily a form of oppression, it can be dispensed with, and the movements that attempt to do this, therefore, get rid of religion, aren't themselves religious movements, which they evidently are in many of their functions, and many, and not just religions, but religions of a particular kind, because the, um, I mean, I think there's a, a strong argument against some conservative interpretations of hyperliberalism, which say that. They are forms of neo-paganism. I think this is completely mistaken. Um, what's um, uh, striking about paganism, if you think of a philosopher like and poet like Lucretius or uh, a writer like Seneca or a dramatist and so on, is their extreme moral modesty. Um, they don't um, um, uh, imagine any vast emancipation or manumission in the world in which all of the of suffering and uh, uh, oppressed humanity suddenly gets um, some kind of good news. There is no good news for the, for the mass of humanity in, in paganism. Uh, whereas what was distinctive about Christianity was um, uh, that it inverted many of these pagan values. It found um, nobility in uh, being a victim. Uh, uh, being oppressed, uh, and it made its central image that of Jesus on the cross an image of a broken human being who'd lost everything in the world, but nonetheless somehow embodied 
human salvation or human redemption. In this respect, I think a different term for hyperliberalism would be hyperchristianity. That it's actually not just a religion serving some of the generic functions, universal functions that religion does of giving meaning to people's lives and uh, giving them a story that can integrate the otherwise um, uh, disjointed events of their lives into a, into a coherent um, narrative. But on top of that, and in a, it's, it's distinctively of Christianity. Not so much of Judaism, because it's universal in a way Judaism wasn't. It's a universal uh, um, um, story. So one of the paradoxes, I think, of it is that, uh, like Christianity, it has universalist claims. And the way this comes out is this sort of tacit, there's a kind of tacit claim for Western leadership in hyperliberalism. They're tremendously opposed to imperialism and um, colonialism and Western claims of supremacy or domination. And yet, they think the entirety of human history somehow leads up to this moment of deconstruction, which has emerged in, in the West, and particularly in the United States, from which it spread to other countries, particularly English, the Anglosphere. The Anglosphere is where it's most powerful. Um, and that the whole of the world has to go through this deconstruction. Uh, if it's to achieve. So th th there's this sort of strange paradox in hyperliberalism as in, as a form of hyperchristianity that on the one hand, it condemns the culture, the civilization from which it emerges. On the other hand, it says that in producing this capacity for self-criticism and self-deconstruction, it's in the vanguard of human development. And the rest of society, India will have to go through this. China will have to go through this. Uh, uh, Russia will have, none of them are going to, of course, but anyway, they have to. None of them will imbibe it to any significant extent, I think, because it is actually a local phenomenon. It's spread through other, to other countries, but it is intensely and prototypically Western. It's a prototypical Western secular religion. You do associate the word woke with hyperliberalism. I don't think we yes. should. I don't think now is the time to have an no, argument about what that, that word no, means, but no. just give people a sense of some of the things that you're talking about. But you also make the point that as well as being a, a hyper version of, of religions that it thinks it's left behind, mm. this is also a coping strategy mm. um, in an extremely fragile and fractured and precarious world Yes, in, in which people, as they always have in ways that Hobbes would recognize, are looking for ways to find security, including mm. job security yes. and so on. Mm. And that like all religions, although this one doesn't acknowledge it, it's very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. It can be very exclusive. And it is about sorting people into status categories. So hyperliberalism, which is the universal post-religious religion, yes. is also deeply hierarchical. And that's well, yes. part of its paradoxical quality. Part of it, deeply hierarchical because it's um, uh, gospel of self-deconstruction uh, implies the illegitimacy of nearly all previously or all human identities and its embrace of some particular uh, oppositional identities implies the um, um, illegitimacy of the identities against which the opposition is is launched so as it includes it excludes and of course also I I have some time for an economic model of um, uh, hyperliberalism in that um, in a in a in a in a in an environment an economic environment in which lifelong careers 
uh, of a traditional bourgeois kind are the stuff of uh, fantasy and fiction. The world is changing too much technologically and geopolitically and, and, and even climactically and materially for any such, for 50 years careers to be planned and uh, launched upon with any degree of rational confidence. In that acutely um, uh, insecure environment, which Hobbes, I think, would have recognized in some ways, um, um, hyper-liberal movements with their hierarchies, with their statuses, do offer something, which is that if you can, if a person can get themselves into a favored group or especially into the leadership uh, cadre of that group, then they can ride the tiger of um, economic and political and uh, um, material insecurity. At least that's what, what, what they hope. If all, if all the ladders around them are of career advancement and social status are crumbling or breaking down or the rungs are falling off, then by uh, arrogating themselves a certain authority, a certain um, status, they can hope to survive and um, uh, in in this very unstable world, and so that's a kind. Of, it's a kind of economic, but a Hobbesian. It's that's a Hobbesian way of I think of thinking about hyper 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 liberalism. So that the later thinkers who thought in this vein, like Pareto, I think, the Italian sociologist, in his theory of elites, he just sees an unending um, uh, circulation of elites developing new ideological rationalizations for their positions. Or later writers like Turchin. Uh, contemporary writer who's written of the overproduction of elites in society, uh, uh, of graduates and other people aspiring for elite positions, but in a circumstance in which, for various reasons, elite positions are dwindling in number. And some former elites are sinking from their elite status into becoming lumpen or post-bourgeois, squeezed out. In that kind of uh, sharing the general precariousness of work and income in society in that kind of very frightening uh, uh, um, uh, um, world, uh, becoming a, um, a, a hyper-liberal has many attractions apart from or in addition to the meaning it confers on the lives of those who so, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a winner in two ways. It's actually rather like uh, early Christianity, as I mentioned in the book, because one of the sociological theories of early Christianity that has been advanced is that it gained from the plagues of that period, of the period of the few centuries uh, after the foundation of Christianity, because Christians, unlike the pagans, when there was a plague, the, <laughs> the pagans ran away. They didn't help each other. They ran away. Uh, and uh, they found it very hard to explain the plague other than an act of senseless uh, whimsical cruelty or, uh, by the gods. So they had no narrative for it. Whereas Christians looked after one another and they had a, a narrative which said that the world was being punished for sin and that they would, uh, by displaying Christian virtue and Christian fraternity and Christian charity to each other, they would um, uh, uh, gain God's, God's favor. So one of the theories of um, the origins of the, socio of the material, you might say, origins or the Hobbesian origins of, Christ of early Christianity and why it spread so much and became a world religion is that it was better adapted to a world of plagues than paganism was. And so similarly, you might say one of the reasons that hyperliberalism has spread beyond America, 
like a with a kind of vast contagion, particularly in, in, in but however strong and virulent in 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 the Anglosphere, the English speaking world, uh, but not to the whole world as yet. Is that the extreme insecurity of highly developed, highly technically uh, proficient societies where technological and other types of change are very, very quick, very accelerated, uh, and where the state doesn't actually uh, pick up many of the pieces. Um, uh, the uh, hyperliberalism has some of the advantages of um, early Christianity. So I want to come on um, in a bit to what might come next or, or how this story <laughs> might play out. <laughs> but a, a very distinctive feature of your book is that many of the illustrations you draw on for some of the ways in which this can really go wrong quickly and surprise the liberals who hold these beliefs when they suddenly discover themselves in a kind of Hobbesian mm. nightmarish war of all against all mm. is from the history of modern Russia. Mm. And in your book, you draw a lot of examples. So this is a book very much about the contemporary world. I mean, mm. it might sound like we're talking about ancient history or mm. early modern history. We're not. We're talking about 21st century liberals and their, their beliefs and their illusions. But you illustrate that. Mm with examples from Russian history and Russian literature. So just to take one, that one that's often cited mm. in the 21st century, Dostoevsky's mm. great novel, The Possessed or The mm. Devils, mm. which is both often treated as a, a prophetic book about the Russian Revolution. Mm. But also you'll hear people say they can see it being played out on American campuses, as it mm. were, as we mm. speak. Mm. So what was it about, about the history of Russia before, during and after the revolution that made you feel this is where you want to draw your examples of some of the ways in which these illusions can spiral out of control? It was partly because, David, it's a very good question, partly because I thought many people would be incredulous. <laughs> That's to say, you know, what have we got? We hugely, tremendously advanced societies, vastly self-critical societies. What have we got in common with these um, fanatical Russians? Mm -hmm. Uh, with their kind of vast semi-feudal um, uh, order and their uh, um, um, atavistic, uh, tyrannical uh, political system. Well, um, I think the reason, one of the reasons I chose it is that I wanted to emphasize this obvious point of fragility that even very advanced societies could melt down um, very quickly. Uh, as one of the writers I quote, one of the lesser known writers I quote, I'll get back to Dostoevsky in a minute, uh, um, in the book said, um, uh, the Ancien Regime in Russia vanished in two afternoons or maybe three. Now, of course, there was a huge set of circumstances that produced that uh, evanescence of the Romanov order, including especially the First World War. I mean, if there hadn't been the First World War or if... Uh, it ended differently, or Russia had withdrawn from it at some point. Maybe this huge meltdown wouldn't have occurred. But there were lots of tendencies in late Tsarism, a radical intelligentsia overproduced in uh, Turchin-like uh, fashion, per uh, Pareto-like uh, fashion, a, a social group without a legitimating ideology, without anything that could give it an alibi for for power and that could get it out of its marginality and its its poverty. Uh, that was a very important um, um, uh, 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 feature. And also a certain kind of atheism, quite the opposite of Hobbesian atheism in a sense, in that in 
in what I think Dostoevsky does is to identify a, a type of um, humanism, a type of revolutionary thought that is um, uh, precisely ascribes godlike powers of self-creation and self-transformation to human beings or to a few of them at least. And some of them became terrorists uh, uh, in the sense that they were licensed to do anything to bring about this this new new world. They became ascetic uh, kind of terrorists. So, but of course, the, the Dostoevsky book, uh, The Possessed, is, is a wonderful book in many ways. Many people don't like it. I like it because I think it's the funniest of his books, maybe the only one of his books that is really funny. <laughs> Most of them aren't that humorous. But uh, um, it's funny in that it portrays the uh, the um, temporizing uh, um, um, intellectual uh, academic supporter of radical movements who doesn't understand their capacity for destructiveness, how quickly they can move into, as you say, into a Hobbesian anarchy or something even worse than a Hobbesian anarchy because they can move into becoming a kind of um, uh, uh, um, persecutory religion uh, or a, um, a religion which aims to exclude certain categories of people from the, the human world altogether in order to have a purer and a human world which can embody these capacities for self-creation. I think, and I think the way, uh, um, the way Dostoevsky does that in that book, it illustrates, I think, what one Russian critic called his cruel talent. He has a cruel humor, Dostoevsky. He was a cruel writer. Uh, and in this case, um, he brings out the absurdity, the weakness, the self-deception of the um, liberal sympathizers with terrorism, who somehow imagine with radical radical hyper-liberalism hyper in, in this Russian early, in this late 19th century Russian form. They imagine that somehow their position as prophets, their position as mentors even, will survive the upheaval that they then provoke. And of course, it didn't. And they were among the first to be uh, compulsorily driven out of Russian, or if Russia in the, I mentioned this rather wonderful episode of the philosopher's steamship when hundreds of um, Russian intellectuals and cultural figures were offered um, uh, uh, and he told to emigrate if they weren't willing to accept the authority of the new regime. But of course, many others just died of starvation. They became what were called former persons or were swept up in the camps at some stage or another, or even quite early were executed as some symbolist poets um, were. So whatever their fantasies of leading the uh, hyper-liberal uh, upheaval were, they were entirely dashed within a few years. And I think this is not, this is, I think the hold, uh, the reason why, again, another reason why I insist, sort of insist on this Russian, why I chose this, apart from being interested in it myself uh, and interested in the lives of those who lived through it, one of the reasons I hold it is that the hold of meliorism on Western thinking is so profound, that's to say, People think, as Mill did, that previous phases of human improvement, once they're uh, embodied somehow, don't go away. In other words, they have a kind of scalar view or a hierarchical view of history. Once you've emancipated women or slaves or some colonial, that's fixed, that's permanent. Once you've achieved some, and then you can move on to other ones, other ones. But in fact, the lesson of 20th century history is quite the opposite. 
look what happened rather quickly in uh, under the pressure of the great Wall Street crash and the depression and other features of COVID. But look what happened quite quickly in post um, uh, Versailles Germany, an unraveling of a century or two centuries of moral progress in um, 10 years or five years. And then look what happened in Russia, which is, I mean, in many ways, of course, Imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia was a deeply tainted regime, but the, uh, and deeply uh, uh, imperfect and flawed uh, in many, many ways. But the, the sudden, the suddenness of the um, descent into a more than Hobbesian war of all against all, and the scale of the casualties, 10 million, in a few years in the Russian Civil War, for example, and of the emigrations, illustrated, illustrated to me uh, a feature of um, well-known to Russians today, if you talk to them, I mean, they take this for granted, the way many Chinese people do, by the way, as well, Chinese intellectuals do, that, that uh, uh, um, a, a social order embodying certain improvements, which has existed for a long time, for several generations, can suddenly melt down in much less than the space of a single generation. That's a, a kind of truth about meliorism, which is very little grasped even now in the West. That, that, that the uh, progress that's been achieved over several generations could unravel very quickly. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future podcasts should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And while you're there, do sign up to our newsletter to find out more about everything coming up at Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.